Welcome to our first episode of 2023. This is Beyond Distribution with GTDC Podcast, and we're very excited about our guest, Douglas Holtz-Eakin. Douglas is a renowned economist and president of the American Action Forum. Prior to his current role, he was the director of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office and former chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. In this conversation with Frank, Doug shares his thoughts about the current state of the U.S. and global economies, the state of the supply chain, and the regulatory environment. Doug will be presenting live at our upcoming Vendor Summit on February 8th and 9th in San Diego. And for more information about the event and to access all of our research and content, please visit www.gtdc.org. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to our next session of uh, GTDC Beyond Distribution podcast. Uh, I am delighted today to have uh, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, a renowned economist and the president of the American Action Foundation as our guest. Uh, Doug, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're really thrilled to have you. I mean, I yeah, I read through your bio and I I I can't do it justice. But the one thing that that did jump out at me was the former chief economist of the President's Council of Economic Advisors to help formulate policy. You know, in the early two thousands, you know, during the you know the recession period and also right after nine eleven. That caught my eye. Obviously, there's more. You just told us an anecdote uh, when we were talking earlier about <laughs> other things you've done, but you can do more justice to your resume than I can in your bio. So if you don't mind, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you've done. Sure. Um, you know, I'm a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, went to a small liberal arts college called Denison University, which is about 30 miles east of Grant, of uh, Columbus, Ohio in Granville. And um when I was a senior, I had an advisor pull me in, great guy named Paul King, looked me square in the eye and he said, you're not ready to have a job. You better go to graduate school. <laughs> so I did. Uh, I applied to a bunch of graduate schools and ended up getting into Princeton and they gave me a full ride in a stipend. And I thought, you're going to pay me to go to school. This is a good deal. Um, and I ended up getting a PhD in economics. And, and the good news about that was I had no idea I wanted to be an economist. Um, it, But I, I took to it over the, the time I was at Princeton and and then they sent me off to do what, you know, uh, college professors always do. They, they create mini-me's to go out and be assistant professors out there. And so I went off to Columbia University. And truthfully, um, after three or four years, I was quite sort of uh, nervous that I had chosen a bad profession. I, it just didn't seem like the papers I wrote made any real difference in the world, just a, this esoterical stuff that academics do. And, uh, you know, the students did or did not pay attention. And so... Uh, in a sort of early midlife crisis, I went to the George H.W. Bush administration as a senior staff economist at the Council of Economic Advisors. And to my tremendous surprise, I found out that economics was important, that all of the research people did really was the only anchor on the policy process. People said anything. They, they, they asserted everything to try to get what they wanted. And you could come back and say, look, there are 150 papers on this they don't tell us exactly what the right answer is, but it's not yours. Okay. That's not what happened. So, you know, so it gave me a little bit of belief in the enterprise. I, I spent a lot of time teaching, you know, you know, saying things like, look, let the private sector take care of that. Like you don't need to do that. Um, and so at the end of that time, I went, I went back to academia and I spent, you know, a uh, long time at Syracuse university 
Um, and in early 2000s, uh, I had the chance to go back to work for George W. Bush and as the chief economist at CEA. And I thought I'd go for a couple of years and then head back to Syracuse. And um, while I was there, um, the, the world changed uh, essentially overnight. Uh, I was in the White House on 9-11. Uh, well, you know, no one ever recovers from the shock of the events of that day. Um, worried a lot about the economy. We had a, a recession and it was called the jobless recovery and, you know, just really um, uh, had the, the honor to serve a guy I have a lot of respect for and, um, it, and really felt like I was contributing something uh, during my time there. So that was, that was a, you know, a nice experience, but I thought I was going to go back and, you know, go, go back to be a college professor and, and, Right when I was about to go back, I got offered the job as director of the Congressional Budget Office. To me, that was just a dream come true. CBO's uh, uh, the the sort of think tank for Congress. You keep track of all the things they do in the budget, but you also write reports on anything they want to know about. And so uh, we had 230 people. I was like a kid in a candy store. Like there was someone on that phone who knew something about everything, and I and I I got to run it and um, and learn from it. Uh, but one of the things I learned is that be careful who you talk to, because the guy I talked to a lot ended up um, being John McCain, and he wanted to run for president. So he called me up and he said, look, you did a nice job with CBO. I'm thinking about running for president. You want to help me out? And because I'd never been on any kind of campaign, not even high school president, I said, yes. Had I known anything, I'd run in the other direction, probably. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I went and I did that in uh, 2007, 2008. It was an extraordinary experience uh, that that really did change my life. And, um, I, you know, he's a man I love to this day and miss dearly. Um, but the practical reality is at the end of that campaign, I was unemployed. <laughs> That's the way that works. So I started the the American Action Forum, the think tank that I've, that I've run ever since, uh, as a way to, number one, not have a boss again. Again, I, I like that idea. Number two, get to do the, the things that turned out I really liked, which was talk about policy issues in English to non-specialists, try to understand the politics so that you can make good policy, good politics. And I work a lot with young people. My staff generally is in the 20s and 30s, and it, it, it's just a, a it's just fun to be around them. So I've managed to sort of combine the best aspects of my various pieces of my career. And so I, I would count myself as uh, one of the luckiest people there is. I've, I've had a really, really charmed existence. Yeah, I mean that is a that's a great that's a great bio, a great background, and and it really is interesting how along the way things happen that change the plan that you thought you might have. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. There, there are different kinds of people. Um, you know, my daughter is a planner. She knows what she's going to wear next August on Thursdays. <laughs> That's not me. I mean, my strategy has always been do whatever you're doing to the best of your ability and see what opportunities it produces. And 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 I, I've had a, a lot of great opportunities. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, you know, the term that I've, I've used in the past and I've heard because I'm kind of a planner is, you know, man plans and God laughs. laughs. Yeah, you know, I've heard that one before. And I think about it a lot when, you know, when you're thinking about planning. But but, you know, so obviously that's, you know, fascinating. But is there one sort of honor or accomplishment, you know, over the years that, you know, you're most proud of? Because there's a ton of stuff there. Well, I think there are two that stand out to me. Uh, the, the first is being director of the Congressional Budget Office. Um, the, the CBO, for the people who don't know about it, um, was created in 1974 by the Budget Act to advise Congress 
Uh, the executive branch had the Office of Management and Budget. They had nothing, and they felt the the, the the sort of playing field wasn't level. So they wanted to have their own, and they wrote into the law that it would be nonpartisan, and um, uh, that's an important part of the job. Call them the way you see them. Ignore the politics. I was the first CBO director to come directly from the White House to CBO, and the Democrats at the time were flatly skeptical that I wasn't just a political hack. Um, Senator Ken Conrad, uh, in particular, was was the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. He just said, "Look, Doug, I I, I don't see how you're going to do this. You have friends over there in the White House, and you know we need someone who who isn't like that." And I said, "Look, Senator, let me tell you the truth. Um, at the White House, I organize the staff to give our best economic and policy advice to our political superiors, who my large ignores. At CBO, I'm going to organize the staff to give our best economic and budgetary advice to my political superiors." I looked at him. I said, "Who will?" He goes, "Okay, point taken." Um, and at the end of my my time there, he he said I had done an outstanding job and that no one had been uh, better fulfilling the mandate of nonpartisanship. I feel good about that. Like yeah. I did I did that job to the best of my ability. And the second one that stands out is just being on the 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 McCain campaign, where you know it's 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 the most ridiculous experience anyone will do. I've never been in an organization that in the primaries has to change who it is state by state to, and then suddenly has to scale to a national scale. You try to spend about a billion dollars and then shut it down on a date certain. It's the most bizarre management experience in my life. Um, and, uh, but but, but we, did, we did a lot of good work. And one, the thing I finally realized about the people around John McCain is everyone I talked to did their best work when they worked for John McCain. That tells you something about who he was. Yeah. And, and we, we did our best for him. Yeah, he was clearly an inspiring, you know, person and a patriot, obviously. Um, the other thing that, you know, you mentioned there was the nonpartisan piece. That is, yeah. particularly in this environment, it's so refreshing uh, and so important, frankly. You know, um, I, I grew up in Boston, by the way, and Tip O'Neill was, you know, one oh, of the guys yeah. from Cambridge. Right? Legend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, growing up, people would always talk about him because, you know, he was from the same town, et cetera. And I thought he was a great example of somebody who could figure out, him and Reagan would figure out how to put, you know, the partisanship aside yep. to a certain degree and get try to get something done, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's frustrating right now. Very frustrating right now. Just just I think everyone knows that. Um, but but I I am I'm quite optimistic on that front, actually. If you if you look at what went on there, Reagan would go to O'Neill and say, okay, look, we we gotta get something done on this. Um, what do you need, Tip? And, and and then Reagan would go to the Republicans and say, look, we, we have to have X in here or, or it's not going to happen. O'Neill need, needs this thing. And so you should know I'm not going to sign it if it's not in there. It's real simple. Yep. So the successful bipartisan stuff begins in the White House, I believe. Yep. And, and people think like right now, oh, my God, nothing ever gets done. Think about the infrastructure bill that Biden signed into law. That died twice. And, and President Biden personally intervened, had people over to the White House, said, I want to get this done, asked the Republicans, what do you need? And they said, you can't touch the 2017 Tax Act. And so it, final deal, it's not in there. It's done in there anywhere. Yeah. And so they got the yes on something that's very bipartisan because the White House provided that leadership. I, and not, so I think there's every reason to believe we can get back to doing that more regularly again. Yeah, that's interesting. So that kind of that kind of ties into my next question, which is, you know, obviously there's tons of challenges out there and yeah. we'll talk a little bit about that, but what is, what are some of the positive things, you know, that you see both perhaps, you know, in what's happening in 
in in the in the landscape of politics and as well as the global economy uh, you know what 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 what's some of the hope some of the bright lights that we might be thinking about well, well let's start with the very biggest picture of the global economy i mean it, it has proven to be remarkably resilient um you look at the the sort of pandemic hits, uh, in particular the the zero COVID policy in China, which has enormous economic repercussions, and and sort of has disrupted all sorts of uh, supply chains and decision making. Then you get the invasion of Ukraine and and the sort of uh, uh, issues in in Europe that are falling out of that, especially on the the energy price front. And you know, everyone would have thought we'd have a big global recession. That the out of all of that, we haven't. We had a short, sharp recession in the United States, very short, two months. Um, we have, by and large, weathered this uh, as a globe. And that that's pretty amazing, I think, um, remarkable. And, and the second thing I think that that's happened is that without holding a big summit or making a big deal about it, everybody's pulling in the same direction. We have every central bank cognizant of inflation and, and moving in the same way, just as Four years ago, they were all cognizant of the need to to provide monetary stimulus. So uh, that's a that's a backdrop of the sort of pretty good success in in a challenging environment. Yeah, that that's good. That that's that's actually that's actually positive. And the fact that you know somebody as as close to it as you, who obviously has experienced it over a number of years, you got enough perspective to be able to you know get a sense for it. Obviously, yeah, well, and it's certainly not always that way. There's any number of times when people are just going in different directions. So it, it stands out to me that, that that helps. Yeah, no, that's great. So, you know, clearly there are people concerned, you know, anybody who pays attention, you know, inflation is still raging, it appears. The interest rates continue to, to rise. Um, you, you said something that, that caught my attention. You said we had a recession <laughs> for two months, which... Um, I was about to ask you, are we heading into a recession? So yeah. explain to me what your thinking is around that, if you would. Sure. Uh, you know, if, if you can remember back to 2020, it seems like, uh, you know, 50 years ago now, yeah. but we entered growing pretty well, uh, two to two and a half percent, not spectacular, but we were pleased with low unemployment. Wages were rising for people, especially low skill. But, it was, you know, there's a sort of a positive environment there. COVID-19 hits and, and we get... Um, uh, an unbelievably bad second quarter of uh, 2020. Uh, GDP fell by nearly 10 percentage points in the second quarter alone. Worst year of the Great Depression was 12 for 1932. So we have practically the worst year since the Great Depression in, in one quarter. We lose 20 million jobs in April. Uh, the unemployment rate jumps by 10 percentage points. It looked like the, the, the economic end of the world. Uh, the good news is both Congress with and the administration with the CARES Act, you know, two and a half trillion dollar stimulus, uh, the Fed, enormous monetary stimulus, responded quickly. I mean, in real time, they did what they needed to. Um, and by May, we we had job growth again. So March and April turned out to be recession months, shortest recession in U.S. economic history, really deep. <laughs> I mean, that's a big drop. But in the third quarter, we got back, you know, eight percentage points to that decline and the job growth continued and, and you know, we only made one real big mistake, and that was everybody in 2021 repeated what they did in 2020. The Fed stayed on the gas. Yeah. They kept buying, you know, uh, uh, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, interest rates are zero. We passed the American Rescue Plan, another $2 trillion of stimulus in an economy which was growing at 6.5% and didn't need it. 
and 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 that generated the inflation. So uh, big success in 2020, overdid it. 2021, create a problem for ourselves, quite frankly. Um, and and now that's the issue. Um, so you look at the as you mentioned, the most recent consumer price index uh, inflation report. We've got uh, top line inflation at 7.1 percent. That's still really high. Cores at six. The one I always track is look at food, energy, and shelter as a bundle. That's still going up at 8.9 percent year over year. So, you know, you go to the gas station, you then go to the grocery store and you go home and you remind yourself that you're losing 10% of your purchasing power. I mean, it's, it's, that's why there's so much heat around this issue. And the Fed is doing what it needs to do to get it under control. And it's the Fed's job, quite frankly, they, they acknowledge that they're, I think have, they were behind the curve, but they've, they've made up a lot of ground and they're, they're, they're going to take care of this problem, but it's not going to be overnight. I mean, it, it's this isn't a problem measured in months. It's a problem measured in years, and they are going to have to stay at it in 2023 and into 2024. And anytime you've got a war in Europe and COVID-19 not exactly gone and the usual things that you don't know about, and the Fed's doing things it's never done before, like try to bring back the $5 trillion in stimulus it's stuffed into the economy in two years, there's the chance of a mistake. And there's a chance we will go back into negative territory. I, I, I think you'd be crazy to, to say that's not going to happen. But so far, it, it's really interesting to me. Um, everybody's got all of their attention focused on the U.S. household. I mean, they're talking about, you know, can this consumer survive? What about the holiday spending season? There's only one post-war recession which was led down by the household sector, and that was the pandemic one, right? When people couldn't go out and spend and didn't, we got the recession. In every other post-war recession, it's the business sector where spending falters first. And it's a quarter or two later that the households, you know, there are layoffs and things like that, yep. then they start to, to falter. So I've had my eye on the on the, the business sector pretty closely. And you know, non-residential structures are are in the pits. So that that's a reality. But everything else is remaining strong. I mean, you look at the durable goods orders and the, the sort of capex indicators and even with the Fed rate increases, we haven't seen that really weaken dramatically. So that's that's good. And the question is, how long can that remain true? That's that's the single most important question for me. Assuming, and for you guys, that that the distributors, that's all they can, they're going to care about, right? I mean, who they need customers who, who want to do big um, uh, projects, and 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 so far that has stayed um, in place, and that's yeah. that's good. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, a couple of things strike me as, as you were going through that. First thing is, you know, you mentioned perhaps, you know, the Fed and, and everything in 2021. The thing was, it was so unprecedented, right? I mean, it's just so unprecedented. You just, it was really hard. You can look back and, and say, you know, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. My view on it is we were in a crisis period where there was no playbook. <laughs> you know, there's some things there's, there's a playbook for. There wasn't a playbook for that at all. Right. So I, I've been on record as criticizing the Fed for being too late, even at the time. And I was opposed to the American Rescue Plan, but I'll defend the Fed in the following way. I mean, what did they do just for the pandemic? They kept rates at zero, even though, you know, the unemployment rate was down at three and a half percent. And everyone was saying, oh, my God, you're running the risk of, of making a huge um, mistake. And and so I think they thought, well, look, if we're going back to the world of the of the pre-pandemic, that was a world where we needed to keep things low and we needed to keep our foot on the gas. And, and so, no, I'm not going to take my foot off the gas just yet. That, that wouldn't be wise. And so I, I can see why they would have erred on that side. And they did. And so that, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
obviously you're very familiar with you know the folks in the IT industry I know you've spoken to folks with uh, with the channel company uh, a lot of the suppliers and certainly the distributors um, what's your take on the IT space because it seems to have been holding up pretty well um, you know maybe some of the the fang you know companies have experienced right. some issues you know recently but for the most part see it's held up well through the through the pandemic and um, what's your thoughts going forward from an IT standpoint well certainly um it held up more than well during the the pandemic became a much more essential piece of many more businesses and households just no doubt about it and a lot of the fang problems are just retrenchment from an unrealistic level driven by the pandemic and so i i don't think that's indicative of the the it sector as a whole and certainly not of the state of the economy people react too much when amazon lays somebody off i mean you know the, there isn't any evidence of widespread layoffs, none. I mean, and and so I, I think the tech sector has has held up very well, and they are the they are the the capex spending that's held, holding up and which looks strong. IP products are, are and, and equipment are, are big chunks of uh, what is the strength of the U.S. economy. I, th I think you know my number one uh, concern has been that the rate environment and uh, the the other headwinds to the global economy. I mean. The European economy is is held up better than I thought it would, quite frankly, thus far. Um, China, all, all bets are off. I mean, they've 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 dropped the zero COVID, um, but they don't have an effective vaccine strategy or vaccine for that matter. And so the, they they're an ongoing public health question mark. Who knows how that plays out? Um, so so there's reasons to be concerned. I think still about. You know how much longer the the IT sector can remain at the level and pace that we've seen so far, but I, I'm always hesitant to write off the 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 U.S. private sector is pretty resilient, and so yeah. uh, fingers crossed on that front. Um, but it's 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 the number one question. It's yeah. not it's not the it is literally that. Yeah. Well, uh, you I mean the one thing you did say, and and you know I talk about it all the time um, is the resiliency of the IT space really has been amazing. And in the distributors in particular, and this isn't just a commercial for them, but the distributors from the minute the pandemic happened went into, you know, uh, an, an amazingly fast process where they stayed in place. They were able to continue to keep that supply chain going. And it really wasn't until we recently had some supply chain implications that wasn't caused by, you know, COVID or the or any of that, caused by other things, uh, that we've actually had issues where people had, you know, difficulty getting product. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting, and it ties into, you know, both sort of regulatory as well as, you know, you mentioned how the government kind of passes, can get, can pass some, some bills, et cetera. But I think the CHIPS Act is a pretty significant um uh, 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 occurrence that we've had. What What are your thoughts on that? And um, what's your What's your take on you know kind of what's What's happening from that? So, as a matter of sort of getting something bipartisan done, I, I think it's it stands out, right? That yep. sailed pretty easily. Um, there's the chips piece and the science piece. I'm I, I we'll see what happens with the implementation of the science piece. Whether we get real genuine innovation out of that. 
I'll, I'll admit my bias. I think running, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars through government organized regional innovation centers is a recipe for not innovating. Um, and I, I prefer to have, you know, the, your guys out there think about how to do things because they, yep. they did it. Um, the CHIPS Act itself really was started by the, the observation that there were some uh, chips for that were DOD particular that needed to be done in the U.S. And, and so I understood that need. It got a lot bigger than that. I worry about sort of how that plays out. But in, in the big picture, it's going to be $50 billion. It's not the that that's that's not going to either save or sink the U.S. semiconductor industry. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the private money is going to do that. And and so um, to my eye, the government's role in solving these supply chain problems is, is pretty overblown at the moment. Like think about what went on in the pandemic. Pandemic hits. Everybody and their brother suddenly needs to have some sort of connectivity, whether it's a Zoom or a Teams or a, you name it, you know, just, yep. and they need, they need the, the hardware to run it. They need the bandwidth uh, to have it be usable and, and, and reasonable. And, and so that had, those are products that had to be delivered in an unbelievable environment. And, and the, in the pandemic, the supply chain problem was just COVID, right? I mean, places getting shut down inexplicably, drivers don't show up, trains don't run, you know, it was, all that got fixed. People changed their supply chains essentially overnight. I'm going to have to hold more inventory. Didn't used to have to. I do now. Here we go. We're going to have it. We'll, we'll service our guys. So I, everybody has their own supply chain. The government doesn't have any ones. And you have every incentive to fix your supply chain. And, and the ITD sector did it and did it really well. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, there's a second layer of supply chain things more recently, which the government decided to have. Like we have decided to change our stance toward China. So we've created some supply chain problems. We have, and they will, they will get fixed. I have no question about that. So I, I'm, I'm less worried about supply chain issues than, than most people because I see the private sector fixing them all the time. They just had to change very quickly a business model that had been entrenched for you know, 20, 30 years. We're going to hold no inventories. It's expensive. There's no need to. We can get it in just in time. That went away. And that changed everybody, you know, a lot. Um, yeah, you, you could argue that that whole we got carried away with that whole just in time uh, phenomenon because the minute the minute you get an unnatural or an unusual occurrence that is unpre or unprecedented probably is a better word for it, it it just fell apart. You know, I, you know it's it's one of these things where you know it's all about diversification. I got all these things, I'll be fine. Nothing will hit all of them. Guess what? A pandemic yeah. does. Yeah. Oh well, there it goes. <laughs> But, but even with you think about the semiconductors, Taiwan's an issue now. People are people are just diversifying away from Taiwan. They recognize it. Yeah. Just, just going to have some alternatives. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Well, look, um, <clears throat> this has been fabulous. Um, the one thing I would like to just talk a minute about is preview yeah. the fact that you're planning to attend our GTDC North America Summit. Absolutely which we have in February uh, uh, 8th and 9th coming up in the San Diego area. And we're thrilled to have you. And I know you're familiar, you know, sort of with the audience and you've done some things for uh, other folks in this industry, but uh, we couldn't be happier to have you join us and talk to us about, you know, your view, which will probably be a little different than it is today because it's a few months away and things sure. are happening so quickly, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm thrilled. Uh, I, I'll just say in advance, I say this uh, all the time. I, it's nice that I get to come and I'm happy to talk and I, am, I hope it's helpful to everybody. But 
I always learn more from these audiences than they learn from me. And those terms of trade aren't fair. I'm just going to apologize in advance. (laughs) It's literally good to go hear what people are interested in. What are they worried about? I learn a lot. I start looking at things I didn't look at before. Um, so I look, I look forward to the chance to learn a little bit more about the state of play right now with, with your industry. Um, we'll have more time there so we can talk more about the regulatory environment. We do a lot of regulatory work at, at American Action Forum, uh, specific regs, domestically, internationally. I think without a whole lot of domestic fanfare, the Europeans put in place this, uh, they're going to put in this uh, carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism. That's a big deal. And um it's going to have big uh, trade implications. It's going to have big um, political implications. And, you know, we've got our own set of interesting implementation issues with the Inflation Reduction Act and all the, the sort of uh, carbon-based stuff in that and, and, and other regulatory initiatives. This is a very, very regulatory-heavy administration. We'll talk, we can talk a lot more detail about that. Yeah, that'd be great. One of the things that, that we spend, have spent some time on, and we actually have a very significant piece of work going on, led by our European team is a sustainability um, uh, project in the ESG space, because that is clear in Europe, obviously it's huge and it's coming yep. everywhere else, right? Yep. There's no question. And um, I, I think how, I, you know, as an economist, I, I, I wrote my first paper on uh, climate and the economics of climate change in the late nineties. have seen a lot of the politics of this come and go. There is no question that we can, deal with man-made emissions of greenhouse gases. I, I have zero, zero concern about it. How we do it does matter. Yeah. And, and, and doing it poorly is a dangerous thing. So, so that's worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, that's interesting. We just finished, I just, just got released two days ago, a podcast. We're working with PwC in, uh, in Europe that has a huge practice in this space and yeah. they're helping us pull together. And what we're trying to do is pull it together so that the distributed community and the supplier community kind of get in sync and are talking to each other. Because the biggest issue we have is everybody's off doing something and there's no debate, everybody's engaged in it. But sometimes people aren't talking to each other. And even within my industry or or my group, we've got 22 companies that all compete with each other. And so what I try to do is bring it up a level and get them in a room and get them to talk to each other under our umbrella and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I think it's important, you know? Well, I mean, it's, it, there's a level at which some of the stuff is just like setting standards for like the transmission and use of electricity. Right. Well, like once you have a standard, you're not competing on the standards to try to exclude people, right. trying to make the best product on that standard. Yeah. That's where we want to get the sustainability debate, get it on the product. Yeah, terrific. Well, good. Well, Thank you very much. Uh, we I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to uh, meeting you, you in person uh, in February and, and having you speak to our team. So thanks. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.